Our Father, as we come once again to Scripture, we're reminded of the fact that you created the heavens and the earth and all things therein. That no matter what happens in history, no matter what happens in our personal lives, you always work all things after the counsel of your will. And that we therefore have a foundation that's not hanging in thin air, but is resting upon an infinite personal creator. And that we know that you are our foundation. We give you thanks tonight that you are and that you have called us to yourself through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. If you'll uh, turn in your notes to page 19 and 20, I'm going to review again just what is going on at this crisis when Abraham is called. Then we're going to see the call of Abraham and get into the text in Genesis 12. I would urge you that uh, when you have time, which no one of us seem to do, um, to try to get a, a translation that's comfortable to read and just speed read Genesis 12 through 50. Don't try to go for details. Just go through it as fast as you can. It's important that you, that you get the flow because that's what we're going to deal with actually tonight and the uh, next night and, and the week after that, we basically going to cover the entire structure of the rest of the book of Genesis. It's taken us a year and a half to do it nine chapters. And now all of a sudden, in four weeks, we're going to be doing 40 chapters. Uh, it's unavoidable to do it that way because we have to get into the other events of history. So now we begin to accelerate our pace through the Old Testament. Um, and... Again, I urge you, if you're comfortable, get with a comfortable translation. I know there are arguments about the different translations and so on, but believe me, for the big picture, you don't have to get into the nitty-gritty of which translation and so forth. Most people's problem isn't the translation. Most people's problem is they just don't read whatever translation they have. So after you've read the translation, then we can start talking about little details. But let's just try to read first. Um, on page 19 and 20, what I've tried to do is outline the structure of the world system. And once again, to, to make up the point that it was the world system that came into existence during the, this time, just after the Noahic Covenant. By the time God called Abraham, the world system, the spiritual orientation of civilization had already begun to set. It's sort of like wet concrete. The incident at the Tower of Babel was the, obviously, the only event that the Holy Spirit considered significant between Noah and Abraham. And we know from Scripture at least five centuries passed. So we have to keep coming back to the fact, well, something must be very important about the Tower of Babel because God obviously thought that important enough to make an issue out of it in the text. So, on page 19, we deal with the first of those three uh, lusts, and we said that we're just using the tripartite structure that the Apostle John spoke of, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And these are forever with us, they're forever part of society, forever part of the world system, the lust, well, forget that pencil, lust of the eyes, 
the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Now, those were John's terms, but you can see those same elements appear as early as the temptation of Eve. You can even make an argument that the three temptations of Christ followed that same pattern. It's a little more difficult, but I think you can make the case. So that tripartite structure occurs throughout the scriptures. And so what I've tried to do on 19 and 20 is just kind of organize it for you as to how these three elements control the structure of civilization. Not that they control the technology of civilization or the arts of civilizations or the science or the business of civilization. Rather, they're an agenda that is played out in all these areas where art, music, business, uh, all the activities of civilization tend to further these three things. They're always competing in this unseen spiritual force that shapes our society. Wherever, west, east, north, or southern hemisphere is making a difference. So, the first one, the lust of the eyes, that's, I have taken that in a larger sense in page 19 to refer to the eyes in your head, in, inside your brain, that the mental pictures we have. So therefore, I've labeled it the corruption of human imagination because it's, it's the vain thoughts. It's the things we conceive of with our own little autonomous sin natures, our flesh, what we think of in our, the, movie, the movie screen in your head. That's what we're talking about. And... It's corrupt. And in particular, we said that one of the central points of corruption is that we, as creatures made in God's image, we want to see the big picture. We're made, our hearts are made to conceive of the whole. And the moment we try that in the eyes or the imagination, we come up with this thing that we've seen so often. It's this continuity of being. And again, I, I point this out all that fancy phrase means is that God, man, animals, molecules are just shades of each other. In other words, it's just a quantitative difference between, if you, uh, one Christian writer put it this way, it's Mr. Man and Dr. God. God isn't the creator, he's just a more intelligent man. In other words, there's just this continuity that goes on. And what that does, it, everything shades into everything else, and you can see that although this arose centuries ago, back in the time of Nimrod, that same continuity of being underlies Darwinism. Darwinism is the application of the continuity of being to biological history. So, it, it's, it's a universal premise. It occurs everywhere. And again, I direct your attention to the quote from Rushdoony on page 19 of the notes, where he says, and he's absolutely correct, as far as I've been able to read in the scholars of history on the, on the history of men's thought, that first sentence in that quote, apart from biblically governed thought, the prevailing concept of being has been that being is one and continuous. God, man, the universe are all aspects of one continuous being. And in the last sentence of that quote, the corollary that most people never think of is it eliminates creation, ex nihilo. If everything's a shade of everything else, then thinking back last year, we 
uh, in Genesis 1, I had you read the uh, creation account according to the pagan Tiamat, the Enuma Elish uh, uh, myth. And you remember in that myth, the universe is part of the anatomy of the gods. The universe comes out of the anatomy of the gods. The gods uh, have sexual intercourse and they, they open the universe up. So the universe is an extension of the very being of God. That's not a biblical view. And what it does, it idolizes creation. Because if creation is an, is an appendage of God, then I have to worship the creation. I have to serve the creature. And that's exactly the heart of paganism. Serve the creature. God's attributes of eternality. The universe is eternal. God's attributes of omnipotence. The universe is all-powerful. God's attribute of omnipresence. The universe is everywhere. And so there's a transfer of those biblical attributes onto the universe. Now, again, I remind you that this is not just a theory. There's a spiritual reason this happens. It's got to happen. It's the way the rebellious heart insulates itself against the claims of God. See, sin always does that. What we're seeing here is to get insight into our own flesh because, we, you know, judgment begins in the house of the Lord and we have to start with ourselves, not our neighbor. And we want to get a grip on what is this thing, sin, that we always deal with. And it starts here with a completely falsified view of God. So one of the things that we're always fighting spiritually in our hearts is to keep purifying and purifying and purifying our heart picture, our imaginative, our, the power of our imagination to make it biblical. Because you know that every time you're tempted, if you think about it, you rehearse it, you think about it, it goes over and over again in your mind's eye, your imagination is filled with it and filled with it and filled with it, and then it breaks out into an act or into a, a word, or a gossip, or a malign, or some, some, something. It's the way we all happens. So the fountainhead of all this cauldron of stuff is in this imagination. So what we have to realize is that to stand against the world system requires a cleansing on the inside. We need spiritual soap to cleanse our hearts. And the way we do that is to take in the Word of God. And if we don't take in the Word of God, we don't hold ourselves under its authority. And constantly remember that we have to do with the creator of all things. Then give us five minutes in the world and we've sucked it up again. It's insidious. It is all around us. And it's a constant spiritual battle to maintain an orientation toward God as creator. Not God as some sort of superman who along with us is jointly, jointly working his plan. So, the other thing that we want to be clear on, on the bottom of page 19, is the other feature that occurs again and again in pagan thought is it makes evil normal. So, we always have the idea that good and evil have always coexisted. So, we, we create this kind of a universe in our evil imagination because if by creating a universe that has evil and good in it forever, then we're not responsible. Right? This transforms you and me into victims. We're not responsible. It's only if we have a creation that originally didn't have evil and we are the guys that brought it into existence. Now we're responsible. But if we don't have a real fall and everything always was evil, you and I are just victims. Hey, you know, hey, don't look at me. I'm not responsible. 
So this trend toward victimization. Don't confess sin. I mean, you can't confess sin unless you're convinced you're responsible. You don't confess that you're a victim. So that's the whole thrust of what's going on here in the, in the rise of this paganism and the corruption of the vain imagination. Then on page 20, we mentioned last time that the next thing, the lust of the flesh, there we have a corruption of the devotion, what the flesh is always involved with, are, are the energies, where it's all going. And particularly, the corruption of human devotion has a close alliance to sexual intimacy. And that's what's going on in, in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. There's a close allegiance in Scripture between sexual intimacy and worship, believe it or not. You'll see this in the Mosaic Law Codes. So, so that's why in this area, the lust of the flesh is basically serving the self. Serving, in other words, with effort, with expenditure of energy, with time, catering to self. And it's this that, according to Romans 1, that precedes things like drunkenness, uh, adultery, homosexuality, thievery, and all the, quote, social sins. It's interesting, the Bible is not minimizing those. It's simply saying, hey guys, you got, you're shooting the gun at the wrong target. This is why programs that aim at just say no don't really work. Because you can't just say no unless you deal with the root of the thing. And if it's really true, the biblical model of man, that when I serve myself, God allows, he takes the lid off of restraint and says, okay, you want to serve yourself? Go ahead. Be my guest. Watch what happens. And you're going to find that when you try to serve yourself, that you wind up out of control. Because the whole object of serving the self is, I want to be in charge of my life. And the irony, God always works in irony. The irony in Romans 1 is that the more you try to serve yourself and bring ourselves and our program into effect, it always falls apart. And in the homosexual area, which is the illustration of Romans 1, that is the hallmark of a pagan society. We'll see this very shortly tonight in Genesis 14. The hallmark of a pagan society has always been homosexuality. Always. On every continent, all the time, everywhere. It was, it was prevalent in the Greeks. It was prevalent in Rome. I mean, we think we've got a problem. The Greeks and the Romans, it was like San Francisco from one end of the Mediterranean to the other. That was the way it was. Paul lived in that. The early church lived in that. They lived in a profoundly perverted society. And Paul makes a statement in Corinthians that many of those in that Corinthian church were, past tense, homosexuals. They were cured. If you mention that today, everybody blinks their eyes. Oh, you're kidding. Nobody can be cured of that. That is too deeply rooted. Oh, no. No therapy known to man. Oh, you can stop the behavior, but, but you can't really stop the orientation. The orientation's in the genes or something. It's, it's so deep 
that orientation is so deep that it can never be cleansed. Well, my friend, if that's the way you think, that's a sub-biblical view. I'm sorry. That's wrong. The Bible says that it can, hope is there. The orientation can be dealt with. I'm not saying it's going to be over just like that, but it can be dealt with. What is Romans 1 talking about? That these things can be... What the problem is that paganism doesn't have the power to deal with it, and so therefore it says I'm helpless. Because it goes back to what? What do we say was one of the axioms of paganism? Good and evil are always there. I am a victim. I am a victim of my genes. I am a victim of something else. Or my mother dropped me on my head when I was a baby or something. I'm always a victim of something. No, don't look at me. Hey, don't hold me responsible for something. So, that's just part of pagan society. It always has been and always will be, and so we shouldn't think in America as we see it rising its, its head. Oh, gee, what's happened to our country? Well, it's just going pagan. That's what's happening. No, we've been knowing that for quite some time. So, I mean, you plant the seeds and you get the plants. And so, it's just night follows day. But the third area, the corruption of human judgment. And in Romans 1, which we dealt with last week, we, we mentioned that in verse 32 of Romans 1, that's where the summary of these three, Paul says, these people not only do these things, but they approve of those who do these things. In other words, they redefine the notion of deviancy. Deviancy is redefined. It's done with vocabulary. It gets into the literature. It gets into the media. And finally, it gets into our written rules, regulations, and laws. Like some judge just made this week an announcement, I guess, in Illinois that now this, you can't discriminate against homosexuals in the job. Well, it'd be interesting to make a test case. I don't discriminate against homosexuals. Never have. I just discriminate against homosexuality. Like I discriminate myself between anger, theft, or anything else. I'm not discriminating against angry people, I'm discriminating against anger. But if you can't tell the difference, then you've got the problem, not me. Because I have to start with myself. And I don't see that if I have to deal with my sin, then I don't understand why somebody else needs a special privilege. I mean, I could say the same thing. Every one of us, every one of us has our pet sins. Haven't been a Christian five minutes and you know you get pet sin. So everybody has them. Now, what right does some subset of sinners have to to say that, oh, well, our special sin isn't really a sin. We're just victims. Well, wouldn't you like to be able to do that to your pet sin? Wouldn't that relieve a lot of pressure? Hey, no problem. I'll just redefine my problem out of existence. And that's exactly what Romans 1.32 is doing. What else does it mean? Commentators have long puzzled over that verse because they can't figure out why is it that Paul says that it's worse to approve people who do sin than do the sin. And that's the thrust of the verse. And you can't, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I thought it's wrong to do it. And you'd think doing the sin was worse than approving of others who do it. And that's not the way Paul puts that verse together. If you look carefully at the construction, what Paul says is, those who redefine the sin are worse than those who do it. Why? because they're contaminating the ethical structure of their neighborhoods, of their society, of everything. They're contaminating their entire environment by redefining deviancy. And as I said last week, folks, this is going to be a hot topic 
Now, we think we have little problems now. I foresee this as one of the central points of persecution legally against us as a community. We are going to be singled out legislatively and perhaps judicially for the fact that we refuse to redefine these deviant behaviors. And the Christian church that sticks with the scriptures is going to continue to assault these areas, not the people. We, we're wrong if we do that. But if we continue to hold the scriptural standard, we are going to come into tremendous collision with the way the pagan society is moving today. It's just, it's, I mean, it's just we're just on the railroad tracks and here comes the train. But the advantage we have is that the church has always survived. The empires that have tried to destroy the church have come and they have gone, and the church remains today. Rome thought she could destroy the church. The Romans are a dead language, Latin. The Romans are a has-been group. Nazi Germany thought they would crush the church. Nazism is a ghost of history. The church remains. So we have no sweat that we are going to survive. And the society that attacks the church will go down. But the church will go on and on until Jesus chooses to take her home to with, be with him. Okay, those are the three areas. Now I come on page 20, which we didn't cover last time, because it, it is an important fallout of the, of the Babel incident. After the flood, these three patterns were enforced. Remember, before the flood, before the Noahic Covenant, the human race had the first divine institution, which was dominion, responsibility. It had marriage. It had family. And that was limited. We don't know what else went on. I have the foggiest idea because the scriptures don't say. Maybe angels helped rule the earth before the flood. We don't know. At least we know the it was an angelic police force with armed swords who could kill people at the gate of Eden. And that anybody that tried to get back into Eden would be killed if they didn't mind the sentries. But apart from that, it's a mystery what happened. But after the flood, we have the addition of this new divine institution of civil government, which means the sword has now been placed into the hands of man, not angels. And then it was Nimrod, who we studied in Romans in chapter 11 of Genesis, it was Nimrod who combined the agenda of paganism with the state. So that now the sword of the state became controlled by these three things. And not only did the sword of state become under the authority of these three lusts, but it became a worldwide government. Actually, you could argue, say that Babel was the first United Nations building because that was the first call for world government. And it was a call in disobedience to God. It was a call for a one-world system that would be united. Why did man want to have a one-world system? For security. Security against whom? Security against God. What did Genesis, and we want to turn there, please, because I want to look at a phrase in that Tower of Babel thing, because we're going to see the counterpoint to that phrase tonight in Genesis 12. If you turn to Genesis 11, 
Let's read verse 4 again. This is the Spirit. Capture, listen to this verse and, and capture the Spirit of the verse in your mind's eye, in your heart. I mean, visualize this as kind of a music with a beat to it. And, and almost hear the beat. Hear this, because it's all over. It's all around us in the world. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city. Is there any submission there? What does the Lord want me to do? Do you detect any of that spirit in the verse? Is there any question about what God wants here? No, no. We, we have the plan. And we will build for ourselves a city. And not only will we build a city for ourselves, but we will make its top go all the way to heaven. Now, thankfully, the Hebrew has that expression top to heaven elsewhere, and elsewhere, if you look it up in the concordance, you'll see that it, it means a high building. It means high, like a skyscraper type thing. doesn't mean that they thought they were going to actually get to heaven. But in one sense, they did. Because, remember, if you go back into the continuity of being, if it's just a case of Mr. Man and Dr. God, does that tempt man to become Dr. God? If it's just a question of IQ, if it's just a question of a, of a quantity increase in knowledge, why not try? Why not try to be like God? See that spirit? We will get the whole thing together. So it says, come, let us build for ourselves a city whose top will reach to heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Look at what the text keeps on doing. We, let's count the number of expressions, pronouns and reflexes. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. You notice that last verb in verse 4, be scattered? Is it active or passive? It's passive. It means they are afraid somebody else is going to scatter them. The subject receives the action of the verb in the passive sense. So now, it's we are afraid that we will be scattered. By whom? Well, you know very well by whom. Who said in the Noahic covenant that you will go forth into all the world? God did. Were they ignorant of that? Of course not. They knew that. So, secretly, they don't want to say in verse 4, lest God scatter us over the earth, because, you see, that makes the rebellion kind of out in the open, doesn't it? See, the feature about sin is it's always sneaky. But let's just rephrase it a little bit. You know, I'd be too, too offensive to say, well, we're going to do that to heaven because, I mean, after all, we don't want God doing it. No, 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 no. We're just afraid that we might be scattered abroad by, by someone, you know, someone. See the spirit in that? That's the spirit of a world government that was brought into existence at the beginning of our civilization for the express purpose of defying God. And you'll note that the whole theme in verse 4 is, what are the verbs that man is subject of? Look back through that verse again. What is the subject, what are the verbs that are active? 
in that sentence. First one, they said, of course, then let us build. So who's doing the action in the building? Man is doing the action. So now we have a grand program of works. See, the whole thrust of this is we are going to do it. God isn't going to do this. We're going to do it. Because, you see, we don't want him interfering. I mean, after all, if we trust in the Lord, he might have a scatter across. I mean, he might call me to North America. I don't want to go over there. I'm comfortable here in the Mesopotamian plain. I mean, I don't want to lose my children. I mean, we might send them off in a thousand miles and not see them for 500 years. I don't, you know, plane fares are expensive to North America. So we want to all stay in one cuddly little group, our comfort zone. I don't want to get scary out there. Even though, because to get out there, remember what we gave you, all the background, what was going on climatologically during this time. Ice age. Volcanic activity. It was pretty nasty out there. Sky was black half the time. It wasn't a pretty place. So in order for you to be a pioneer and go all the way off to North America someplace, what did it require in your heart? Trust. In whom? You or the Lord? The Lord who said, go out into all the world. If God said it, he must be giving me the means to accomplish what he told me to do. So, what I'm trying to get at here in conclusion in verse 4 is, verse 4 is an extremely important verse to capture the spirit of civilization. This is always present. It is present in business plans. It is present in academia. It is present in novels, in books, in stories. It's everything. And you'll notice something else about verse 4 after they build for us. Look at the next main verb. Let us make for ourselves, very important, a name. Now, what is a name? When you go back to Genesis 1, do you remember uh, Genesis 2? What did God want Adam to do? To name the animals. Now, if you think about it, Adam was created on the sixth day. Remember God, what does God do in that Genesis narrative? He, he, he says, let there be light, and what does he do? After he, he thinks, let there be, it comes to pass, and then what do you always see after something happens in the Genesis narrative when God works? And he called it, da-da, called it light. He called the dry land earth. He called, you see, God's doing the naming up until he gets Adam on the scene. Then Adam is to continue the naming process. But who, who initialized the language? Who set up the first nouns? God did. So what does that mean? It means that as Adam looks to see what these creatures are that are coming around, he is to kind of take his cue from the creator of those things, thinking submissively under the creator's mind, Lord, how did you make this? That's the spirit of the naming. But now contrast that with verse 4. Let us make for ourselves a name. See, that's the spirit of autonomy. In a short, in a short sense, what it's saying is, I will define the meaning of my life. Or, translated in a larger scale, verse 4, mankind, the human race, will define its own existence and meaning. Okay. Page 20 of the notes. The Tower of Babel and the shape of it. 
Rush Dooney's comment, I, I cite on page 20, I think is very insightful because most of you have seen pictures of pyramids and so forth. That pyramid, besides appearing on our dollar bill, that pyramid structure appears in both western and eastern hemispheres. It appears in Meso, Mesoamerica. It appears in Egypt. And look at what it means. The place of creation is the primeval mountain or pyramid arising out of the waters of chaos to establish order. This sacred mountain or tower is where communication is established in the continuity of being. The significance of the Tower of Babel is thus apparent. It denied the discontinuity of God's being. That means the creator-creature distinction. It denied that distinction and asserted man's claim to a continuity of being with God in heaven. The tower was the gate to God, signifying that man's social order made possible an ascent of being into the divine order. Think of what communism for centuries, or not for centuries, for a century, communism's grip on the intellectuals was what? Why did people give up their life to advance communism? Why did young people go off and become willing martyrs for communism? Why did the Jesuits in Latin America apostatize and get into this Marxist economics? What were they trying to do? What were communists trying to do? What was the grand scheme that led to their dedication? A new social order of salvation. Always a new social order. Because this is a corrupt one. And they think that they can improve it. But they can improve it by man's works. Okay? That's the theme. Now, if we've really labored the point and captured the point, now we come to Genesis 12. Now we're ready for the call of Abraham. This is a fundamental point in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. This is where we, we get into the substance of this great event. This is a climactic event. This is an event that defines salvation and the gospel for the rest of the Bible. The call of Abraham. So let's look at chapter 12. We want to read verses 1, 2, and 3. Abraham, actually, verses 1, 2, and 3, you might want to write a little note to yourself about this because sooner or later, some, one of your kids is going to be in college or in school and the teacher's going to say, oh, there's a conflict in the Bible. Because if you look at verses 1, 2, and 3, it's reported by Stephen in Acts 7 as to having occurred in Ur. And if you look in Genesis 11 at the end, Abraham isn't in Ur because in verse 31 it says, they went out from Ur to the land of Canaan, went as far as Haran. Haran is up in, in northern Syria. So see, there's a conflict in the Bible because Abraham was in Haran and then it says that God spoke to him in verses 1, 2, and 3 and... But then Stephen didn't know any better, and so he said verses 1, 2, and 3 occurred in Ur. Now, what's the solution? Same solution as Genesis 1 and 2. The concept of Scripture is that verses are not always sequential in time any more than when you read your newspaper front-page story. The style of journalistic writing is, if you were given an assignment, what do you do in the first paragraph of your news story? You basically tell the whole story. What do you do in your second paragraph? You go back and start developing details. Now, am I going to critique your journalistic story and say, oh, that second paragraph must have happened chronologically after the first one. You've got a conflict in your article. No, because I'm halfway intelligent and I know that's meant to be interpreted that way. So, verses 1, 2, and 3 explain the content of the call of Abraham. 
They are not intended to say that chronologically this happened while he was in Haran in the end of verse 31. Actually, verses 1, 2, and 3 occurred while he was in Ur. It's put there because now beginning in chapter 12, what is the theme of Genesis here? The call of Abraham. So naturally, the writer wants you to see the big picture. It's not what happened to Terah. The big picture isn't how long he lived. The big picture isn't about uh, Abram, his son-in-law, and Haran, and all, all the details of verse 31. Those are subsidiary. The key text is verses 1, 2, and 3. Now let's look at that key text. Now think of verse 4 of chapter 11 that we just got through doing. Skim verses 1, 2, and 3 now, just quickly, to yourself. Skim verses 1, 2, and 3 in Genesis 12. What words do you see in verses 1, 2, and 3 that remind you, that harp back to something that was going on in verse 4 of chapter 11? Anybody catch it? What? The name. What had happened in Babel? We will make a name for ourselves. Who's doing the doing? Man is. Now, who makes the name in verse 2? God does. And there's the difference. Right here at the call of Abraham, under one principle, man does the doing. The other principle is God does the doing. And this is the grand theme of the Old Testament and you'll see it in collision time after time after time. And Abraham is said to be the man of faith and we'll talk about his faith. His faith wavers because he always wants to, he and Sarah want to get into the thing. We will make our name. Oh, And then they have a big mess and then God says, okay, now, got, got the picture? Now, I'm going to do this. Oh, fine. And then a couple of chapters later, oh, we're going to do this. And then they screw up. That's a big mess. And then they come back over here and say, okay, God, do your thing. And it's a struggle. You know, we, we laugh at that, and it's kind of nice because, you know, we always like to know somebody else fails. I mean, it helps the ego. Um, but Abraham is a realistic guy. And he didn't come submissively to this principle perfectly right in the beginning. There's a period of adjustment. Fifty, the next 40 chapters, they're going to talk about Abraham, going to talk about Isaac, going to talk about Jacob, going to talk about Joseph. All four of these generations are having to live under verse 1, 2, and 3 principle. And the, all the stories basically hang on that. That's the theme of the rest of the book. How, every event you will read have to do with how they are adjusting to this or not adjusting to it. They're obeying it or they're rebelling against it. They're submitting to God in trust or they're doing, doing, doing it with the energy of the flesh. Doesn't that sound familiar? See? So the scriptures hammer away at this theme. So when we brush aside all the details, it gets back to the same old thing we're all dealing with all the time. All right. Let's look further at verses 1, 2, and 3. Do you see three things in that section? We're going to come back to those later in more detail. But can you, what, what do you see as themes? What about verse 1? What is it that God is offering him? A land. Verse 2. What is he offering him? A seed. Verse 3. What is he offering him? A blessing to what? The entire world. What was the theme in, of chapter 11, verse 4? 
Nimrod's kingdom was to prevent a what kind of government? A government local? Government for the entire world. Do you see how 11 verse 4 is in collision with chapter 12 verses 1, 2, and 3? There's a profound collision here. Grasp this because this is the heart of our personal struggle today. It's the heart of the Old Testament. It will unlock page after page of the Old Testament. All these stories that may have seemed disconnected to you will come into focus. And you'll see this. And you'll see the magnificence of our God as he works down through the centuries of history, always with the same theme. I will do the doing. You do the receiving. I am the giver. You are the receiver. And we always, in our arrogance, think we are going to do the doing and he will do the receiving. No, no. Wrong. So that's what this theme is all about. Let's look further. What was Abraham to do in order that this whole thing happened? Where was he? Where, what is the significance of where he was? He was in the heart of where Nimrod developed his empire. Abraham came from the very heart of the world system. What had he have to do? What did he, God say, I want you to do? I want you to get out of there. What were they afraid of doing while they were in Mesopotamia, according to verse, chapter 11, verse 4? They didn't want to leave, did they? That was their comfort zone. I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. I have to trust the Lord if I do that. So what did God ask Abraham to do? Get out of the comfort zone and trust me. So here we have the march of the man of faith. He has to get out of the world system. Now there's a cycle here that I want you to notice because very few people seem to see this about the Old Testament particularly. They think missions started in the New. Not so. Here's the cycle. You have the world, oops, back to my blue pencil. You have the world system, then you have what we'll call the, the land, in this case the Palestine land. Abraham has to leave to get over here, but is he to stay over here in the sense that this is going to become a sort of greenhouse where he's going to grow all of his spiritual flowers? and they're going to stay inside the greenhouse. What does verse 3 tell you ultimately is to happen? That the entire world will be blessed. But the, it starts by separation. It, ironically, it starts by separation, and lo and behold, after the separation, the world gets blessed. But the world can't get blessed until he first gets out of it in order to grow spiritually so that he can be a blessing. And actually, in the Hebrew text, um, if you look at verse um, 2, the last clause, and so you shall be a blessing. I don't know how your translations translate that, but an alternate translation to you shall be a blessing, because the Hebrew is a, it's a verb form that can be passive or reflexive, if you take that verb as reflexive, it says, and be a blessing. You go be a blessing. A blessing to whom? A blessing to the whole world. They will all be blessed in you. So Abraham has a worldwide call by leaving the world system. There's irony in this.
on to a little note about the structure of Genesis up there on page, I won't belabor that tonight because of our time, but the top paragraph on, on the notes on page 24, I just point you out that marker. Remember we studied that marker a little bit before. Those texts, 11, 27, 25, 12, it's in that first paragraph, 25, 19, 36, 1, 37, 2, if you look those all up, that's where that, these are the generations up, these are the generations up, these are the generations up. And if you trace what X is, you'll see that it keeps getting to a smaller and smaller group of people. And what it's doing, it's setting up your focus on what line that is going to go into the New Testament. We are focusing now on the development of the messianic line promised way back in the Garden of Eden when the seed of the woman was to come into the race. So here it begins. Here begins the drama. And slowly, as each marker goes by in Genesis, our scope condenses and condenses to condenses. But we want to move on to Genesis 14 for a moment tonight. The story, uh, we'll skip 13. That's why I say I'm, I feel so bad about having to rush through this, but... If this were a class in Genesis, we'd obviously go through every chapter. But in chapter 13, to summarize, is the case where uh, you can always use this with your kids when uh, you're serving something nice at the table and you say, so-and-so, do you want this piece? And of course, yeah, I want the best piece. And so they grab it. Well, that's a lot operation. And Lot wanted the best piece, the best real estate, which, by the way, tells you the climate was different because the Dead Sea, I guarantee you right now, you wouldn't want to buy that per acre. In those days, it was well watered, it says. Testament to the fact that it was the end of the Ice Age in there. And so, Lot decided he wanted the best place. And it turned out the best place was the San Francisco of the ancient world called Sodom. And the whole story of chapter 13 is the story of the Sodomites. And all the kind of things that went on there and so forth. And uh, the setup for it. The Sodomites are going to come again in chapter 18. Um, but anyway, he no sooner gets down there and there's a war. He gets taken captive and in verse 13 of chapter 14, here is Abram. By the way, he's, a, he's not poor. This man is a wealthy rancher. He had many head of cattle. He runs a ranching business, basically. And this is his company. And if you look there at uh, verse 14, it tells you how many people he had in his company. This is a big ranch. He had 318 people. All the ranch hands and, uh, and their families. So, this is, can be viewed as a, as a businessman. A fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. He was living by the Oaks of Mamre and so forth. His relatives had been taken, verse 14. He let out his trained man, born in his house, 318, which shows you obviously there were more than 318 in his whole group and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his force against them by night. He and his servants defeated them. Verse 14 at 318 gives you a a perspective at this point in human history of how big cities were or how big armies were and how big battles were. When you read about battles in the ancient days, it was probably only a few hundred people at most because the population was just growing then. So he has 318 people this are his company. It reminds you of sort of Ross Perot's deal when one of the, uh, what was it, some of his employees got held up in Iran back years ago 
and he tried to get the government to do something. They never would do anything, so he hired his own soldiers, and they went and got to solve the problem. And so this is the kind of thing Abraham did. Remarkable parallel, actually, here, that uh, there was nobody else to do it, so he armed his company, and his employees went out and uh, took out these people. It was a little nasty operation, but he took care of the problem, and he got his people back. Now, what we want to focus in on is what happened when he came back in verse 18. As he was coming back, he was met by this guy that comes out of a place called Salem. Now, all kinds of things going on here. Do you know where that hap- what city today that's a part of, that name? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Salam is the Hebrew word, S-L-M, is a, is a stem for peace and welfare. Like today in Israel, the greeting instead of hello is shalom. S-L-M. So, it's a city of peace. As far back as this early point in civilization, that city, now we know as Jerusalem, was known as the city of peace. But it's in the land of what? This is the irony. It's in the land of the Canaanites. So what does it tell you when you read in verse 18 that all of a sudden this, this person, and it's hard to say whether this is his name or whether this is his title, because verse 18 could refer to the fact Melchizedek, the Melech, the M-L-C-H, that K, that hard C-H, M-L-C-H in Hebrew is king. And Z, uh, D-K, Zedek, is righteousness, the king of righteousness or the righteous king. So it's, it's not too clear whether this guy, it's his name, popular name, or whether it's his title. Whoever he was, he comes out. Some people think he actually was Shem. That Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out wine and, and bread, and he was the priest of the Most High God, or El Elyon. So here is a, a city in the middle of a, of a Canaanite pagan land. Here is a leader who worships El Elyon. He is a priest of this God. Now we are introduced to a theme that plagues us in our witnessing oftentimes. What about the heathen who have never heard? And we want to to focus on that for a minute. The implication goes like this, and I think I have the logic down on the bottom of page 25. We're skipping around the notes tonight, but that's okay. The last uh, uh, paragraph on page 25. Let's look at the logical flaw in the pagan objection, the so-called heathen problem. The argument looks like this. Let's look at the argument. First, vast numbers of mankind have never heard the New Testament. Two, the New Testament insists upon Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. Three, therefore Christianity is unjust to insist mankind cannot be saved except through a message they've never heard. Sounds very potent. Actually, when I was a non-Christian, I thought that was a pretty cool argument. The flaw is in one. Let's reread one. Vast numbers of mankind have never heard the New Testament. Well, yes and no. Yes, vast numbers have never been introduced to the New Testament in a literal sense. But the truths that are in the New Testament were originally in their culture because who did they all descend from? They had to have descended from home. Noah. 
So no matter what tribal group we're talking about, somewhere in their corporate memory are pieces and chunks of the Noahic Gospel, the Noahic Genesis, or Bible. Genesis 1 to 9. Every tribe on earth has its roots back to Genesis 1 to 9. Now, if they don't have it, whose fault is that? They were given it at one time, corporately, whose fault is it? What, what's the spirit of paganism? Chapter 11, verse 4. We don't want to trust this God. We want to do it ourselves. And so, therefore, we, we start suppressing it. So, the first answer to the heathen problem is that it's a wrong setup. Remember we said back, we, we can't emphasize this enough, don't answer questions that are loaded. How many times last week did you beat your wife? Classic one. Can't answer that without, content, without you know, I mean, what, what answer do you give to that that doesn't incriminate you? You say none. Oh, well, none last week. What about the week before? So, the question has a skew to it. And we have to be careful. That's why Jesus didn't answer questions at the trial. Judge said to this and that, Jesus was quiet, didn't speak. Why do you suppose he didn't speak? Because he has stupid questions. Stupid questions get stupid answers. Proverbs says, answer not a fool according to his foolishness. So don't answer foolish questions without redefining the question. Two can play the redefinition game. So the fallacy in the heathen argument, first of all, in statement one, is it is not true that vast numbers of people have never heard. Vast numbers of people are living in people groups at, who at one time had complete access to Genesis 1-9 to and may, if you look carefully, still have pieces of access. As many of the people New Tribes Mission have found in the islands of the Southwest Pacific, these people have quite a bit of information. Nobody ever noticed it before. Then you have a few Chinese Christian scholars who all of a sudden are looking at the Chinese characters and say, holy mackerel, look at this. They're one of the old Chinese characters for God, Shang-Ti, which was this mysterious God that existed back in Chinese history and somehow disappeared. He walked away. I wonder why. And his picture in the Chinese script is that. And you look at it carefully, it's quite obvious, when, when the Christian Chinese guy points it out, that the picture is a man in the clouds. Now, where did they get that from? It wasn't from Confucius. It goes back to the fact that's a memory deep and buried inside the Chinese alphabet of the one true God of Noah. Shang-Ti, the God of the sky. The God above all. They remember that. Come on. It didn't happen. That's there. So the first problem with the heathen argument is it's simply not true that vast numbers of mankind never heard. They haven't heard the New Testament gospel, perhaps, but they have had access to revelatory information. There's a secondary comment on number one also. Not only do they have the corpus of the Noahic Bible, but they also have inner God consciousness given in Romans chapter 1. They're not living in a vacuum. They have a conscience. They're very aware of their sin. Now, how God deals with those people out in Timbuktu who haven't heard of the gospel, well, all we know is we've been given mandates to go carry the gospel to them. But, for example, in 200 B.C., in North America... If someone wanted to be saved, how were they saved? must have been saved by the residual revelation available to them 
that God made available to them. In, Rome, in Jeremiah, he says, you know, if you seek me with all your heart, I will show you to me. God may have his ways of doing that. The point is that he's given the church the mandate to carry the gospel into all the world because that's what he wants sent for various reasons. All right, let's go back and summarize something about Genesis 14. You have in verses 18 through 20 the blessing of Melchizedek upon Abraham. In the notes on page 24, I point out and give you verses in the New Testament and Psalm 110 where this act, this mysterious act, is remembered throughout the pages of Scripture, even though it only occupies three verses, as the defining act of Jesus Christ's priesthood. It's remarkable that when Jesus Christ rises from the dead and He ascends into heaven and sits in the Father's right hand, His priesthood is not Levitical as you would have expected to be the Jewish Messiah. That was the Levitical priesthood. The book of Hebrews says it's Melchizedekian. Now, isn't that a dinger? What? The Jewish Messiah is a Gentile priest? Now, let's put this a little bit together. Why do you suppose the book of Hebrews insists that Jesus' priesthood is Melchizedekian and not Jewish? Think back. What have we already seen about Abraham's ultimate call? Is it just to be a hothouse? Or is he called out of the world to do something, to walk with God in such a way that he will be what? That the world can bless, be blessed through him. So the point is that the call of Abraham, while it brings into existence the Jew, this is the first Jew of history, Abraham, it brings into history the Jew and the Jewish nation at the very point the Jew and the Jewish nation come into existence, they come into existence for a mission to the rest of the world. So, the rest of the New Testament has the Gentiles in mind, even though they're always peripheral. You always read about the nations around Israel and so forth. It's always on the outside because the Holy Spirit is focusing on what God is doing in Israel. It never gives up mention that ultimately all the show is designed for all the nations of the earth. So, the Melchizedekian thing, the point about it is, is that verse 19, Melchizedek comes and he blesses Abram, not the other way around. So, there's a transfer there. There's a transfer of sorts. In verse 19, there's like a, a spiritual transfer from a Gentile priest to the Jew. The Jew receives the torch, as it were, from the last pieces of that Noahic generation. They carried the torch for 500 years. These people taught the Word of God to every race on earth. They were exhausted at 500 years. They were dying out. The human race is becoming contaminated and you have these little pockets of believers left. They're little remnants. And here's one of those remnants, probably one of the greatest Gentile believers in that era of history, who is led by God to go to Abraham and say, the torch is yours. I recognize in you, Abram, that God has called you, that you now have the blessing of El Elyon, and you will carry the torch from now after I'm gone. It's a dramatic moment, dramatic moment in the history of the Old Testament. Now, immediately after that, there's something else, and this has to do 
with, on page 25 of the notes, the exclusivism. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abraham, now here's the other king. First the king Melchizedek, the king of Salem, then the king of Sodom comes. Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. That was the prisoners and the booty. Abram said to Sodom, and this is a classic. This is a classic about giving money or receiving money. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to Yahweh El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, I won't take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours lest you say I have made Abram rich. Now, why did he do that? Why, in the, in the theme that we've been looking at tonight, going back all the way to Babel, what was the theme of Babel? What was the theme of God? The theme at Babel was, who's going to do the doing? Man, we will make for ourselves a name. We will do it. And what does God say to Abraham? I will do it. Now, here in an, a dramatic act of submission, verse 23, he refuses to accept booty from the world system because he doesn't want to be indebted to it and he doesn't ever want the world to say, oh, well, those Christians, those spiritual people, I mean, they got their stuff because we gave it to them. So he cuts that one right off at the pass. You can keep your money. That's basically what he's saying. Forget it. My God's big enough to supply my need and I don't need to be a beggar to the world system. And I'm not going to be. That is a dramatic point. But what we want to see is that you have now set up in this tension the tension between how he acts toward Melchizedek and how he acts toward Sodom. There's a definite breach, if you'll notice there, that in one sense he recognizes those who are believers, those who are godly, those who have submitted to what they knew of God, Abram's friendly to them, but he will not compromise and submit and become dependent upon the world system. What a model! And this is why Abraham's picked out as a man of faith. Well, next time we're going to go on and we're going to deal with the Abrahamic covenant. If you look in page 26, what we handed out tonight, we're going to deal with this covenant because this is the beginning of the plan of salvation in great detail in the Old Testament. And you'll see now that many, many stories that maybe didn't make sense to you before will make sense because they are actual recordings of this Abrahamic covenant. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you do bless us. We thank you for the testimony of this godly man, Abraham, and how scary it must have been for him to step out, going to a land he didn't know, going in a situation where he knew he couldn't be sustained by people, but he had to look to you for all of his sustenance. We thank you for your faithfulness toward us. In Christ's name, amen. We will have a little short... Q&A here if you're interested in a few minutes. Nothing extensive, but if you have questions, I'll be here. To all believers. Um, strangely, some very nasty characters of history may have been believers. Um, there's, there's a, if you look at the book of Daniel, you have a case where here the foreign minister of Iraq and Iran, basically, Daniel, um, witnessed, obviously, to the, all of political hierarchy and they couldn't avoid his testimony. It was quite public. Um, and it appears from time to time you get glimpses, you wonder whether Nebuchadnezzar himself might be a believer. If he wasn't, he surely recognized the authority of Daniel's God. 
and the way God treats him, as though he's disciplining him for being a, uh, an out-of-it believer. So, there's a case. Um, a fascinating book, if you're interested in this, I recommend, if you're at all interested in this question about mission fields and what target groups look like, I can't recommend a book any better than Don Richardson, Eternity in Their Heart. It's a paperback book. Um, it's written, Don Richardson was the guy, the pioneer missionary for New Tribes Mission has done so much, I think the world of New Tribes Mission, because it's the only mission board I know of that has actually had a, had a dedication to the principle that when they go into a group, people group, they don't start with the Gospel of Mark. This is what, for years, I don't know why we got into this, and yes I do, because one translator said they always would go in and translate the Gospel of Mark, and then here you are talking to people you can hardly know, and you're trying to get them to talk about all the parables in Mark. Good grief. Uh, how do you communicate the Gospel with that? No, no slights on Mark. It's just that the Gospel of Mark was, was written to Jews who had known their Old Testament. Well, you don't start in the last chapter of the book. You start in the first chapter of the book. And New Tribes Mission has done that. They have got to a missionary strategy that is part of their board structure that when they go into an area, they start with Genesis because they've learned the hard way that if they can get in there and find names... For example, I was asking um, oh, the, the missionary that just spoke to us. Clyde. Uh, I was asking Clyde about, in that people group he was talking about, has he got a name for God yet? And he said no. He says that that's what he's got to deal with when he goes back, is they've got to do some good research on this. Because you can get in some deep trouble if you don't root it into whatever these traditions are. Example being, a classic boner that was picked up by the church, was when the Catholic missionaries went into Korea, they picked up what they thought was the word for God. And they made the Catholic translation of the Bible in Korean. And then about 50 years later, Richardson has this whole messy account in his book. Then the Protestant missionaries go in there, and by this time the science of linguistics has got a little bit better, and they say, holy mackerel, they picked the wrong word. The word that they picked has a connotation of being a demon. And they were always wondering why the Koreans didn't seem to appreciate this edition of the Bible. Well, you know, it's kind of understandable. I mean, you know. So, Don Richardson makes this very point. And if you look at the quote in um, the notes I handed out tonight, he, Don makes the standpoint that there are peoples all over this planet who have literally craved to have someone come and give them what they keep referring to as the forgotten God and the missing book. It's spooky. The guy, he goes into, when, when some of our famous missionaries, I guess it was William Carey, went into Burma, and we always read missionary stories about he was a great missionary and so on. He says, what we forget is that he had absolutely no success until one day he was either singing a hymn or something, and uh, this guy passed by his door and was poor, was out of work, and he wanted to be working as his housekeeper or something. I don't know what happened, but... He was attracted by the music. And Don goes on to tell the story about how this man come, came out of the bush in Burma. And he, after he got under the employ of this man, he noticed he was translating something. He says, what, what's that? And Richardson said, the missionary kept saying, well, I'm trying to translate this Bible. This is the book of God. The book of God. You've got the lost book of God. And this guy all of a sudden says, my tribe has waited for centuries. He says, our grandparents have told us about the fact that God left us. 
and he was going to come back and he's going to give us a book. Now what is this tradition all about? And Richardson, if he doesn't give you one, he gives you a dozen illustrations from today's world. Stuff that's only been encountered in the last 200 years of history. Where missionaries have gone out where they thought nobody ever went before and apparently nobody ever did go before. We have the strange case that I mentioned earlier about why did the Aztecs and Incas allow the Spaniards to slaughter them? Because it was a tradition in the Aztec and Incas that those most ancient pyramids of the Mesoamerica were made not by their ancestors, but by these strange white people with big beards that left. And when they came back, they were going to tell them the words of salvation. And so the Spaniards came and they foolishly let down their defenses and let the Spanish soldiers kill them all. And actually, they had this built-in tradition that they were going to be visited someday. Now, where do all these traditions come from? I claim that that must have been the work of the Holy Spirit in these people groups. While the Old Testament was going on, the Holy Spirit was also ministering out beyond the boundaries of Israel in ways he hasn't shared with us. Because if he did, then we'd sit on our can and say, well, no, well, go ahead. You ministered to him before, you ministered to him now. Why bother with missions? So, he knows us, you know. I mean, he's been working with us for a while. So, he's not going to give us excuses. And he doesn't choose to share this. But there apparently are believers, and there are these questionables, that Richardson, these things where these men, I mean, they seem to be submissive to everything they know about God. Last year, I handed out in the notes one of their hymns. And they're singing hymns to this great God, Y-W-A, Yuwah. And they talk about Yuwah, and they talk about how he created the heavens and the earth. They talk about the first man and woman who had a rice bowl that they weren't supposed to eat, and they ate it and fell. And I'm crying out loud. If that doesn't look like Genesis, I don't know what does, especially since the, the Hebrew word for Yahweh is Y-V-H. So, that, that's a profound question. What do believers look like? We don't know. The whole, we, we only have these little tantalizing glimpses here and there. Like Melchizedek is the clearest case. Clearly this man was a believer. Clearly he was not a Jew. Job may be another case. Job appears to be a Gentile. Look at all the theology Job knew. And he, he doesn't, not once in the book of Job, check it out for yourself in the concordance, not once does the book of Job even hint at the Mosaic Law, never talks about Israel, is talking about Ice Age conditions with dinosaurs. It's totally monotheistic. There's no paganism at all in the book of Job. Where did that come from? How did Job know all that? How did Elihu and those other guys get that? I don't know, but they knew. So there are believers out there. And then the other part to the answer to the question, what are believers like, is the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is actually a missionary book in the Old Testament. It's, it's very modern because the modern argument against missionaries is that when you take a person from one people group and you mix them in another people group, you get this cross-cultural contamination. And frankly, if the universities had their way, they'd stop all mission work. They think missionaries are the most dangerous people on earth because they think they do damage to cultures. Because, you know, everything's supposed to be left in its pristine form. Well, <laughs> this pristine form is its fallen pristine form. So, they're, they're trying to stop that. But the book of Jonah is a Jew who had a prideful, ethnocentric viewpoint. He didn't want to go. What did God do? Get out there and do, go to Nineveh. Nineveh, Jewish city? Not the last time I checked. 
It was a Gentile city. What happened when Noah preached? People are becoming believers all over the place. And the funny part is, when you look at the the language, when God said to Job, He says, Job, I mean uh, to Jonah, He says, Jonah, don't you know that I have X number of people and their cattle? I mean, you look quickly, we do preach the gospel to cattle. Very interesting phrase in the Hebrew. I have, those are mine. Those are my people and their cattle. And I want you to go bring the word of God to them. Now, were they believers? Well, they must have been by the end of the book of Job because they had a revival in Nineveh that stopped judgment on that nation for a time. So, there, there are believers outside the Old Testament, very definitely. Yes? That's, that's a speculation. And the reason why it's a speculation is that if you look back to that chart that I drew, I mean, it's not original with me. A lot of scholars have said that. Because Shem appears to be the one in Genesis 9 that carries the torch. He's the one that's particularly blessed by, by Noah. And it would be very fitting if God calls Abraham to be the new one, to have the old guy pass it past the baton, so to speak. The other thing is that those who take Melchizedek to be Shem argue that Melchizedek is a title, not a name. And that's why it, it doesn't say Shem in there. The other problem that you get into in making this identification goes back to, to the previous question. Because of the fracturing of language at Babel, it's hard to say, like, it's clear that when Melchizedek worshipped God, his name for God was El Elyon. It's clear that Abraham's name for God wasn't that. It was Elohim and Yahweh. And so, you had probably believers from different culture groups with totally different names for God. This may have contributed to a lot of confusion in these pantheons where you have gods of different names and so on. It's very hard to unravel because we live this side of Babel. And by that, by few centuries after Babel, everybody called, they might have been calling upon the true God, but they called upon him by different names. And this could have let, this could have gotten kind of confusing. And so the issue of, of Shem, after Babel, what was his name? I mean, some scholars who trace this feel like they can identify Shem as appearing in many different genealogies of different countries. But, uh, you know, I'm not a linguist, and boy, when they, they say Shem was Pharaoh something-something, or is king something-something, of you know, well, gee, maybe you say so. But it's hard, because we don't live the other side of Babel. So it's very hard to trace, and you're just sitting here saying, it's a possibility. Anyone else? Okay, we'll see you next week.